Welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hey, James. Hey, Scott. Welcome back to another week. Thank you. Yeah, over two years in now. Yeah. Hard to believe. Yeah. Let's keep going. How long are we going to do this for? Uh, 10 years? Until everyone in the United States understands everything they need to do about their personal finances. Okay. What are we, the halfway there, maybe? <laughs> Easily 10% Easily halfway. there. Keep telling your friends and family. Yeah. Scott has an ambitious goal here. Please spread the words so and help all Americans with their real personal financial questions. Um, no, I'll, I mean, as long as it, as long as we keep having fun let's go with 10 it, years. Right? Yeah, let's just, let's, let's do it. Well, what's funny is like we, we started this just to help people. It's what, why we still do it. We have our own businesses that we grow. Um, but yeah, it's just nice to get to help people. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we really appreciate your listener questions. Um, your listener questions help other people because we get to talk through, you know, issues that are happening and people can see that in themselves or help a friend or a family member. So please submit your questions. And if you like what you're hearing, please take a minute to leave a review so other people can find us. Yes, please. Yeah. Well, we have another question today. We do. Thank you. To this question asker. It was Nisha. Nisha, thank you for your question. Uh, can I read this one? Yeah. I'll she go actually for it. has a few questions. So we're going to break it into two episodes. Yes, Nisha, you asked a great question and it's it's a longer one. So we're going to do two episodes, like Scott said. And we're going to start with the first two questions on today's episode and we'll answer the next two on the next one. And the, the breakdown is nice because the first two are very similar and the last two are very similar. So Nisha says, thank you both for the podcast. I've enjoyed listening to it and I've learned a lot. I have a few different questions. Number one, I manage my mom's finances. She's 70, and while she has not yet drawn down her IRAs worth about $2.8 million, I keep about two and a half years worth of cash for her in those accounts and otherwise aim for 60% stocks in those portfolios. Do you recommend or what do you recommend about when to rebalance? Given that I won't be rebalancing every day, do you have a range that you'd recommend for rebalancing for someone aiming to have 60% of their portfolio in stocks? Mm -hmm. Question number two. My mom is very comfortable with her retirement between Social Security, her pension, and the survivor's pension that she receives from my late father and other assets, about $3.7 million, with most of that being the $2.8 million traditional IRA, plus her home with 19 years left on the mortgage. Every year, my mom generously funds Roth and backdoor Roth IRA contributions for my sister and me and contributes some money to 529 accounts for her grandchildren. She's interested in leaving a legacy for her family and curious of other estate planning options. Our family friend suggested that she fund annuities for her grandchildren. While the 529 accounts are not overfunded at this point, I'm mindful I don't want too much tied into those since they have to be used for educational expenses. Curious about your thoughts on the annuity, op annuity option or any other state planning options for my mom. All right. A lot to unpack there. A lot to unpack. So those are the first two questions. Thank you, Nisha. And it's essentially... What does my mom do with her portfolio to make sure that she's okay? And then the second part of that question is how do we also tie that into the rest of our family and the other goals that my mom yeah. maybe has? Yeah. So where do you want to start with this? Why don't we start with the first question? 
That's um, a logical place. Yeah. So it was about the IRA. It's about the IRA. Mom has an IRA and some of that IRA is in cash. The rest is invested in a 60% stock portfolio with the remaining being in bonds, I'm presuming based on the question and wanting to know, how do I think about rebalancing when it comes to that? Do I do it every day? Do I do it every month? Do I do it every year? Right. What's the what's the frequency? So I would actually, like, in a sense, I want to go two different directions. I want to go a couple different directions. You tell me what else you want to add. Let's go the first direction that I think you want to go. The the first thing, I, well, first is, um, you know, we're keeping two and a half years of cash. I don't. We don't really know what that means. That could just mean what she needs from this portfolio for the next two and a half years. Um. It could also mean what required minimum distributions will be in about two years for two and a half years. Could mm-hmm. mean so many different things. So kind of open ended there, but it seems like it's a sixty percent stock and a forty percent bonds and cash allocation, right? Which is you know can can kind of bread and butter makes a lot of sense to make sure that someone has enough funds for the next thirty to forty years of their life, right? Um, where I'm kind of jumping to ahead of time is. In question two, we said mom's very comfortable with her retirement with her social security, her pension, survivor's pension from her late father and other assets, which includes the IRA. Yep. And so the first place I would go is just, well, how much do we actually need the IRA to provide for mom to be comfortable? Right. So I kind of view it in two different, if we know what mom needs for a year of life, what percentage is coming from kind of the pensions? And social security and what percentage is coming from portfolio. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. The reason I'm going there is if 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 it turns out that we have a lot of extra room, the probability of us needing of these assets depleting are almost are really, really small. Right. Because maybe she has a very small need from her IRA. One of the things she could be doing, which I'm kind of jumping ahead to legacy, but one of the things you could be doing is and now you have to be careful here because this is the dot. <laughs> Nish is going to eventually inherit this. So you have to be really careful. I don't know if we have other family members talking to mom, making sure everyone's on the same page, but it actually could make sense to increase um, a stock allocation if we're really starting to look at generational wealth transfer now and we're not just looking at mom's needs. If we're looking at mom's needs, I think we're already in a really a, a pretty solid space. Yeah, exactly. I think before looking at how frequently should we be rebalancing, the reason you rebalance is because you want to keep the right allocation in place. Yes. So what we want to start with first is, well, what is that right allocation? Yes. 60% stocks, 40% bonds is kind of the quote unquote traditional retirement portfolio. Yep. It's what all the research is done based upon the 4% rule and all that stuff. So it's kind of what people just assume you should have in retirement. And it's maybe not a bad thing. Absolutely. But when you take into account, like Scott just said, if mom's needs are covered between social security and pensions, and she really doesn't need any of that IRA, well, then to what extent should the IRA be managed in a way that it can create income for mom versus to what extent should it be managed in a way where it's um, going to be used to create more generational wealth, like Nisha mentioned, is a goal as well. So I think starting there, we would both say you could probably afford to have more than 60% in stocks if that's the case, if you don't need it. And assuming that mom is comfortable with some of the ups and downs that a more aggressive portfolio is going to have. But we'd start by saying be intentional about that allocation. And that's just, we don't know yet, but like just to be as a, as a point of, of just to give reference at home, a 30, a 70, 30 allocation, which would actually, you know, deliver potentially more future return for the next generation, right. Would still leave about $840,000 of bonds and cash. Right. 
right? So it's like, if we only have a need for 50 grand, well, <laughs> there's still a whole lot of room there, right? To protect yourself. You still have room for money to come back. You still have room for using some of that bond, the bonds to reinvest in the stock market when the stock market goes down. Just as a reminder, every time the stock market goes down, everyone should be excited rather than fearful because you just get to go buy more stuff at a discount. Mm -hmm. It's like Amazon having the half annual sale that just happened, right? You get to go buy stuff on sale. Yep. Anytime we can do that, that's an exciting thing. We get fearful around that in the stock market. That's why we have a need for cash and bonds and a need for stocks. So finding that balance is really important. But I, I would just, I get back to your point, like is what's the right asset allocation for mom knowing that it's taking care of herself and her next um, priority, at least the one that we've heard here is legacy for the next generation. Exactly. Because I think mom's needs are priority number one. Make sure does she have Absolutely. enough income. But like Nisha is saying, it sounds like she's comfortable between pension, between social security. And in your example, Scott, even if she went to 70% stocks, she would still have $840,000 in bonds. We're assumed that she needs yeah, right. 50000 per year from her IRA on top of Social Security and pension, which is a number I'm just making up. Yeah, we're just making up numbers. What is that? 16, 17 years of 16. money worth yeah, of- A little bit more, exactly. Bonds. So right. even if the stock market did nothing for 16, 17 years, financially should be okay right? because of that. So right. that would be our first point is finding what is that right allocation. Now let's assume that Nisha finds the perfect allocation, whether it's 60% stocks, 70% stocks, 40% stocks, 100%, whatever it is. Yeah. Let's um, just stick with the 60-40 that we have. Let's say 60-40 is the right one. Stock allocation. When does she tweak that? Yeah. There's two ways to think about rebalancing. Um, you can rebalance either based on time, your calendar. So maybe like once a year, you choose to just go look at, hey, how much has our stock portfolio grown. Oh, it went from 60% to 70%. Okay. Try, time to sell some of that and go buy some bonds. Or instead it's, oh, stock market has done poorly. We're down to 50% allocation. It's time to go use some bonds and buy some stocks. Right. Right. That's just doing it based on time. When you go look at the research of what does best, what does best is using a tolerance band. Um, tolerance band. What tolerance is that? Band. A tolerance band like basically a means like, hey, piece I'm Piece of okay. workout equipment. Exactly. Well, you would know all about workout equipment. I just, just push up the surf, man. Tolerance um, <laughs> pants. What you're saying instead is you're saying, hey, rather than doing it based on time, I'm just going to go ahead and say, if the, um, maybe I said a 10% tolerance band on stocks. You know, I think when you go look at the studies, the ideal, they find that like 20% tolerance bands seem to work the best. Mm -hmm. um, but so let's just say you said a 20% tolerance band. What's going to happen uh, for Nisha, for her mom's portfolio? She's going to say, hey, so long as this doesn't go above 72%, which would be 60 times 0 0.2, 12% to the positive, or go below 48%, I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. I'm just going to let it keep doing what it's doing. Yep. But if, on the other hand, it goes up to, you know, um, 75%, well, I'm going to choose to sell and rebalance back to my original allocation Yep. in that moment. Yep. Does that make sense? It does. And, and now it's beneficial is you're not doing it based on time anymore. You're doing it based off of market conditions and the portfolio itself. And the whole point that you'd made earlier is when we set an asset allocation, we're choosing to take a certain amount of risk and a certain amount of reward based on our goals. Right. And so that tolerance band allows us to stay within those parameters while reducing costs of trading. 
exactly doing anything. Well, and the reason I think that tolerance bands, not that I think the reason it does tend to work better, the research shows is let's say you just rebalance once a year. Mm -hmm. Well, let's say hypothetically this year, your stocks are up 5% and your bonds are up 5%. Well, what are you rebalancing for? It's still going to be the exact same allocation. It's still going to be exactly 60-40 if everything has gone up or down together. It's where there's a, a deviation or there's a variance between one asset class doing something and another asset class. So stocks doing something and bonds doing something entirely different. Yeah, And it creates that divergence. That's where there's the need for a rebalance. So that's where there can be value added in doing that. And that's why instead of looking at it just a time horizon, which isn't bad, if you're going to do it based upon time, it's better than doing nothing at all, certainly. Yes. But the the, um, tolerance band tends to be more effective. And like you just said, you kind of gave a, a range usually what people are doing is let's say that 60% is in stocks and 40% is in bonds. Well, of that 60% in stocks, there's there's different types of stocks. Sure. There's large companies and small companies and international and domestic, and those are going to have tolerance bands on to- on them as well. So yeah. it's how simple do you want to keep this and just look at it at a very high level and saying, okay, if stocks have deviated this much or bonds have deviated this much, yep. or do we want to take it, make it more detailed at the kind of the more detailed asset allocation level, what type, types of stocks and bonds, right. what are those doing? It can get really complex really quick. You don't have to have it make it that way. Right. But the other thing I want to mention about rebalancing for um, Nisha is that, you know, mom's 70 now, so she's not drawing her IRAs as you noted. But once she's 72 and has to start taking her required minimum distributions, one of the things you can do for rebalancing is you can just simply look at what's done well. Right. And so long as you're in a period where things are going well, maybe with the stock market, then you're going to choose to sell off things that have done well. Right. Which helps you rebalance. Right, because you're you're being forced to withdraw from the the account. Yep. Yeah. Um, that actually comes to our next point, um, which is that one thing that you might mom you and mom might want to do is sit down and look at what mom's um, marginal tax bracket is right now, because right now she doesn't have to take required minimum distributions. For just in case you don't know what a required minimum distribution is. When you reach 72, the U.S. government now says you need to take out those funds out of your IRA that were in your IRA or your 401k or your 403b or your 457 or your thrift savings plan. We now are going to make you start taking some of that money out. Um, Based on the numbers, I just did a quick calc on this. And based on mom's asset right now, that 2.8, she'd have to take about $109,000 of income the year she starts taking these funds. Which will probably jump her up in tax bracket. Yeah. So one of the things you might want to look at doing is fill up her current tax bracket um, by pulling some funds earlier. And you could choose to do what we call a Roth conversion. Would be one idea. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the 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 concept of Roth conversion comes down to any money in Nisha's mom's IRA or anyone's traditional IRA, you get a tax deduction. You put that money into the account. It grows tax deferred. But then when you pull that money out, typically in retirement, you pay taxes on the entire amount. And what's happened is if you've been a good saver and if you've invested well, you you tend to have a pretty substantial IRA balance. And so what's going to happen is you're going to be forced to start to take out pretty significant amounts from that every year starting at age 72 and beyond. Now, those required distributions are going to stack on top of Social Security and pension and other income sources. So like Scott's saying, that could push you into a really high tax bracket. 
today, we don't know what Nietzsche's mom's tax bracket is, but let's let's assume it's very low for a second. Let's assume those pensions and social security is low enough to keep her in the 10% marginal tax bracket. Okay. It's probably not that low, but let's just make that assumption. Sure. Well, could you do a conversion, which is when you convert, so take part of the money in your IRA and put it into your Roth IRA, which the IRS says, sure, you can do as much of that as you want. But whatever the amount of that conversion is, you pay tax on it yep. as if you as as ordinary income. Mm-hmm. So if Nisha's mom were to convert, say, fifty thousand dollars, the IRS says, "Sure, do that. Put that in your Roth IRA." But you're paying taxes on an additional fifty thousand dollars of income this year. So why would you do it? Well, what if you could do that and pay twelve percent taxes today? But if you deferred too long, because now social security is higher, pensions higher, because required distributions are coming into, into play or tax brackets are going up or whatever it is, what if in a couple of years, mom would have to pay tax at the 24%, right? right? Well, I would want, it's it's kind of tax arbitrage. If I want to get as yes. much taken out today at a 12% bracket so that I can avoid taking out more and pay tax at the 24% bracket. Yep. So a lot to look at with that, but it can certainly save quite a bit of money in taxes by spreading those out over the next couple of years as opposed to deferring everything until 72. And just to put a kind of put a pin in this, the way to do that is go look at mom's tax return for last year and see where her what her taxable income number was. And now you and then go look it up on a tax schedule and then you'll know, okay, she's in the, you know, 12% tax bracket or 20, maybe she's in the 24% tax bracket, but at the bottom of it, and you go, okay, do we have any room inside of this bracket to go do a conversion? Yes, we have to, we're choosing to pay taxes now, but compare that to what will it be when we go add an extra $110,000 of income? Right. And if you can choose to pay less now, go for it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or yeah. Consider it, I should say. Um, the other little caveat is ideally you have money in a taxable account to pay that tax bill rather yes. than paying it out of IRA conversion money. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, cool. And this ties into the second part of the question. Yes. Let's read the second part of the question again real quick sure. and then address so, it. It says, my mom is very comfortable with her retirement between her social security, her pension, her survivor's pension, and she received that she receives from my, my late father and other assets, 3.7 million, including the IRA with a house with 19 years left on the mortgage. Um, every year, my mom generously funds Roth backdoor Roth IRAs for my sister and myself and contributes um, some money to the 529s for her grandchildren. She's interested in leaving a legacy for her family and curious to other estate planning options. Our friend suggested she fund an annuities for her grandchildren. While the 529s are not overfunded at this point, I'm mindful of that and I don't want to put too, have too much tide into those since they have to be used for educational expenses. Curious your thoughts on the annuity option or any other estate planning options for my mom. All right. Um, so this kind of ties in, again, first part of the question is how do we make sure mom's okay? How does she rebalance? How do we think about portfolio for her? But this is now on the legacy side of if mom doesn't just want to take care of her own needs, but is also interested in leaving a legacy, how does she start to go about that? And I'm going to start with the low-hanging fruit here, which is what jumps out at me is the annuity mm-hmm. where uh, curious your thoughts, but I just don't see any case where annuities for kids would, would be something that I would recommend. No, I think there are some great things that could be done in terms of estate planning for children. I just have no idea how annuities could possibly fit into that and yeah. be the best option. 
Yeah, I, I think the note I made for myself was um, like, what's this annuity going to provide that investing in a taxable account or a retirement account can't provide? Right. right. right? And so just and just for those at home, like there can be reasons when an annuity could make sense. The top reason for me is when someone wants to make sure that they have enough income for longevity purposes for the rest of their life. Um, so that'd be like someone who doesn't have a pension, for instance, getting a, you know, buying an annuity to make sure that they have a cash flow stream late in their life, just in case. That's the top reason to me. Once you get out, out and beyond that, I quickly start questioning it because typically with anytime you do an annuity, what you're doing is you're handing a big pile of cash to a company for them to make guarantees and promises, which is great so long as they can live up to them. But the only way that they live up to them, just to be, give it to you straight, is they say, you know, if I go to if I go if I go to to James here and I'm like, hey James, I know you're really worried that you're not going to have enough money when you retire. Give me one hundred and fifty thousand dollars now. I'll invest it for you, and I'll give you a guaranteed rate of return, or I'll give you a guaranteed cash flow stream. There's only one way that works: if I can get that cash flow stream to pay myself and pay you. Right. Right. That's it. Right. Like, there's no other way. I'm not magically making money. Right. So what happens is, is I'm taking on the risk now. So you don't have to worry about it. Well, that costs you something. Yep. That costs you a rate of return, basically. Yeah. Right? So if if you're willing to have a pragmatic way of investing, you can probably do better on your own. It, Not, there can be reasons to get an annuity, but th- they're few and far between in this scenario. Well, and to add on to what you said, because I absolutely agree, there there's something in it for the annuity company. They have there to be able- to be. They have to. They're a for-profit company. Yes. The benefit that they have that a typical retiree doesn't is the time horizon. They have an indefinite time horizon. They don't have to worry about the ups and downs of the market like a retiree does. But in talking about Nisha's children, so Nisha's mom's grandchildren, they have something similar to that annuity company, which is a very long time horizon. They have, I think, a 19-month-old for the next episode. Like We have have 100 years in front of us. Right. So if (laughs) your 19-month-year-old child is thinking about retiring at 20 months old, Maybe an annuity makes sense, but if not, it's there are so many. The the take advantage of the single most important thing your child has on his or her side, which is that leverage piece yeah. and leverage of time of being able to have something invested and compound over years and years and years. Whether it's just in a regular investment account, whether it's in a college fund, whether it's one day in things like Roth IRAs, those are much more effective ways of building long term generational wealth than an annuity which even if it just limits the, the compounding just a little bit. Right. And by the way, they, most of them limit it a lot. Yes. That limited compounding has a huge impact over time. Yes. Agreed. Okay. I think we've said enough about annuities. Our, our short answer here is we don't like that option Agreed. for generational wealth. What do we like? Um, well, let's just talk about the different things that we think should be in place. Okay. First things first, um, hopefully your mom already has an estate plan in place. With that estate plan, she can have a living revocable trust, which can state how she wishes to pass assets to anyone, no matter what. Yes. And now people hear estate planning, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming real quick. Yeah. There are two main components or main types of estate planning. One is just basic family protection. Yes. Have your living revocable trust, have your powers of attorney, have your will, have the advanced directives, stuff that if something happens, you know where things are going to flow or you know who's making decisions. Yes. Then there's the more complex stuff. If you if your estate is larger than the estate tax exclusion, that's where I wanted to go right now, just is that just so that everyone understands at home, like because because you might be thinking like, what do they do to protect their taxes and estate planning right now? So long as Nisha's mom has less than eleven point seven million dollars, 
there is no estate tax. Right. So when she passes away, everything will go to her family and there will be no taxes paid at that point in time. Right. So the, the, there's no need for incredibly advanced estate planning work here. No. Because there would be no estate tax if Nisha's mom were to pass today. It's the basic living revocable trust, family trust stuff that should be taken care of. But they're already doing a lot of the things they can be doing. The key is, uh, to me, the key is is a really good financial plan for mom to make sure that mom is in is locked and loaded to make it through now in retirement, doing all the things that she loves. Her time, money, energy, and talent is being optimized for the best life that she has. Yep. And seeing if there's anything left over, if there's surplus. Right. Right. And if and that's kind of what we were getting at on the first question as well. If there is surplus, then you want to start looking at things you can do. Yep. And the first thing you can do, she's already doing, which is you can be gifting money to your kids, to your grandkids, quite honestly, to anyone every year and not even worrying about that $11.7 million estate um, tax, which there is this, there's this thing called an, a, a gift tax annual exclusion. Can you mm-hmm. explain what that is? Yes. So you can gift up to $15,000 per year to anyone and not have to pay any estate taxes on it. Can you give me $15,000 right now, please? Um, you know, I, I, uh, don't want to have to worry about estate taxes. <laughs> you don't have trying to come to. up with some excuse. Yes, of course, Scott, I'll give you $15,000. I'll give you something better than $15,000. I'll give you my friendship. Oh, thanks, and man. That's it, <laughs> so what Nisha's <laughs> mom can do is because when you, when we talk about estate tax, it's not just what you leave to your heirs or to anyone when you pass, it's right. really a lifetime exclusion. Of if what was the number eleven million eleven point seven million yeah so Nisha Nisha's mom if she had twelve million dollars today in her estate could mm-hmm. gift all of it mm-hmm. and that would use up all of her exclusion plus three hundred thousand dollars on top of it right. that three hundred thousand dollars would be subject to a forty percent um, tax tax estate right. tax yeah. now you can gift each year up to fifteen thousand dollars without having to report that tax it doesn't yes. count against your annual exclusion. You can you can gift more than that if it's to a 529 plan. But to keep it simple, Nisha's mom could gift money to Nisha, to her sister, to her grandchildren, to Scott, to James, to whoever. And there's no taxes owed on that. There's no reporting right. that needs to be done on that. Right. Um, the only thing I want to add is for gifting, because this will happen. Sometimes you'll see this happen because it actually will tie in to next week's episode. Um like, let's say that I, maybe I don't want to, maybe I want to, I want to help gift to my family. Uh, maybe my, my, maybe my nephew is going to have, buy a house and I want to help him buy a house. Yeah. And he and his wife are buying a house. Well, I can gift, I can write him a check for 15,000, but I can just as easily write her a check for 15,000. Mm-hmm. So if it's from my account to their joint account and I make it payable to both of them, I can write him a check for 30,000 right away. Right. And if it's December... Christmas time or, or Hanukkah, I could write them one for thirty thousand, and then on New Year's Day I could say Happy New Year. Here's another thirty thousand. Yep. Right. And now Just they don't expect grand. anything for this year's Christmas or Hanukkah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but now, but now there's like now I just gave a bunch bunched up. Right. Right. So you can start. You can get pretty. You can do interesting things with it. You absolutely can. Yes. Yeah. But gifting during your lifetime is another thing to think about. The other thing is going back to asset allocation that we already touched on. Um. What does mom need to make her safe and okay? And then if we have, you could almost bucket it out, right? You could almost have one IRA that's in a sense, like you almost gamify. It's like, this is mom's money that she absolutely needs that we want to keep this allocation. 
And then here's this allocation over here that we might want to go go for the next generation. Now you still have to do requirement distributions on the total amount, but now right. you've kind of gamified it to where you know like this is protected and this is for more of the next generation. Right. It's just one idea. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is optimizing tax bracket. You know, if, if you want to get next next level on it for tax bracket is to not only do it for um, to optimize it for mom getting to RMDs, credit minimum distributions, but it's actually to look at it for the next level and look at what's the tax bracket of the next generation, if we have next generation wealth transfer happening versus what's mom's tax bracket today. Right. Because we might find that we want to accelerate some things now and pay a little bit more in taxes in mom's lifetime. Right. Because as soon as mom passes, we're going to have to pay higher taxes because we're in working years in this generation anyway. Right. So you can start, it, it's, it starts to get really complicated really fast. Well, it goes back to the example we used before of, do you do a Roth conversion because maybe I can pay 12% taxes on that today, but at 72, it'd be 24% taxes. Well, this is just taking another step further, just saying, what about well into the future when children inherit this? Well, what if they're in 35% tax bracket? Then it just adds other layers of what are we, what's that talk, tax arbitrage looking to do? Where can we pay the lowest effective taxes relative to the goals that we have with this account. Um, but yes, I fully agree that as you start to look at that IRA, not just for mom's needs and and income goals, which is, of course, the first priority, but the secondary side of that is how do you have the asset allocation or the investment mix that is good for mom and future generations and do some tax planning that saves her the most amount of taxes, but also in doing so helps future generations as well. I just want to add one more thing, and that's that we never really discuss what mom's top priorities are. So to me, this always comes back to what does the best life for mom look like? Because part of her legacy may not be about giving money to other people. It might be about having experiences with people while they're alive, right? So it might, yeah. part of this might be mom decides to use more of this money to take amazing, uh, have amazing experiences and trips with the family while she's healthy and able to do it. Absolutely. So- for what it's worth. It's worth a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, anything else? No, but I appreciate your friendship. Cool. Yeah. It's worth at least 15,000. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, more. there's yes. no exclusion on friendship. Yes. Cool. Well, thank you for your question, Nisha. <laughs> thank you, Nisha. And stay tuned for next week where Nisha has other great questions that are more related to her and her husband and their planning. So we'll address those next time. Yeah. See you then. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. And there's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.